linguistic Greetings from Cyberdelic Space. This is Lorenzo, and I'm your host here in the Psychedelic Salon. And today we're going to uh, hear from somebody for the first time here in the salon. Over the past uh, couple of years, quite a few of our fellow saloners have requested that I play something by Robert Anton Wilson, whose uh, books have been read by most of us. And if you haven't read any of Bob's books, well, uh, I don't really know where to start with recommendations. Uh, For sure, you can't go wrong with the Illuminatus Trilogy, which he co-authored with Robert Shea. Then there's also uh, Prometheus Rising and Cosmic Trigger, uh, along with a couple of other dozens that you might find interesting uh, and fun to read. It was the late comedian uh, George Carlin who once said, I have learned more from Bob than from any other source. He continues to produce intelligent, cranky, inspired thought. Although I uh, never had the pleasure of meeting Bob myself, I have uh, several friends who knew him quite well, and I've never heard a single bad word about him. Uh, A couple of weeks ago, I played a talk that Timothy Leary gave when Bob was in the audience, and they exchanged uh, a few words during the presentation. And that caused me to uh, remember that about a year ago, my friend and fellow saloner, Erock X1, sent me some recordings uh, of talks that Bob gave, and uh, he sent them in case I ever wanted to podcast them. Well, uh, needless to say, it's taken me quite a while to get to them, but even us procrastinators get a few things done if we live long enough. And so today we'll be hearing a couple of short interviews that Robert Anton Wilson gave about a, well, the first one was maybe a decade ago, and the other one was uh, not all that long ago. The first piece I'm going to play is an interview he gave about his book, Everything is Under Control, Conspiracies, Cults, and Cover-Ups, which uh, was first published in 1998, I think. And uh, since conspiracy theories are so popular these days, I thought that you might enjoy hearing what one of the great conspiracy theory novelists has to say about them. I don't have any information as to uh, when this interview actually took place or who the person was that was asking the questions, but my thanks goes out to uh, that person and to whomever made this recording so that we can hear it today. And now, here is Robert Anton Wilson. Tonight, we have a very special guest, a man who has written over 30 books, who's an internationally known figure as an author, lecturer, philosopher, a stand-up comedian, a sit-down comedian, stand-up philosopher, you name it, uh, Mr. Robert Anton Wilson. Uh, Bob, thanks very much for being here tonight. Oh, it's a pleasure. Good. Now, your latest book is uh, entitled Everything is Under Control. It's a conspiracy uh, a conspiracy encyclopedia, is that correct? Well, it's not exactly a, an encyclopedia. It's more a crestomacy. I If we did an encyclopedia of all the conspiracy theories around in this country today, it would be at least as long as the Britannica, 22 volumes minimum. (laughs) This is a crestomathy. It's some of the wilder and weirder conspiracy. It does cover a lot, though, I must say, as much as one book can. How did you choose from among the millions of conspiracy theories that are uh, current these days? How did you choose which ones to uh, include in the encyclopedia? Well, there were a couple of criteria. I wanted to put in the weirdest, craziest, goofiest ones. And I also want to put in the most plausible ones hmm. so that the reader would be constantly alternating between laughing out loud at this nonsense and wondering, <laughs> hey, some of this might be true, <laughs> which is the ideal state for a reader to be in, I think. 
Uh, never knowing whether it's truth or fiction, factor or factor reality. Well, again, conspiracy is, a, is a, an extremely hot topic these days. Conspiracy theories abound. Uh, the X-Files is extremely popular on television. Uh, but I know that you've been following conspiracy theories for most of your career, uh, including as far back as 25 years ago with the, the Illuminatus trilogy that you co-authored with Bob Shea. What got you uh, involved in the, the interest in conspiracy theories in the first place? Well, actually, that gets into the new book, too, <laughs> uh, how it all started. It started with a fellow I used to know named Kerry Thornley, mm -hmm. who was one of the co-creators of the only religion I've ever been able to really enjoy, the Discordian religion which is based on worship of Eris, the goddess of chaos, confusion, discord, bureaucracy, and international relations, the five <laughs> levels of chaos in the world. And, you know, the argument for the existence of Eris is very simple. If Eris doesn't exist, who put all this chaos here? <laughs> Nobody can answer. Anyway, Kerry got uh, indicted by Jim Garrison as one of the Kennedy assassination team and that Kerry thought at the time, and all of us who knew him thought, that Garrison was just off his head or an unscrupulous demagogue. <laughs> and then, to our great astonishment, a couple of years later, Kerry announced that he thought it was true, that while he was in the Marines, he, he, he re thinks he remembers that he volunteered for an experiment, and he thinks they gave him drugs and brainwashed him and turned him into a zombie like the Manchurian candidate. So he was part of the Kennedy assassination, but he didn't know it. I mean, he has some <laughs> memories come back now and then. Was he one of the fake Oswalds that were? Uh, that was one. Theory, that was one of the theories Garrison promoted. Mm -hmm. Kerry met a guy in a bar in New Orleans who he thinks was E. Howard Hunt, who told him he was writing a book called Hitler Was a Good Guy. He doesn't remember anything else of that conversation. He met David Ferry once, another of the leading suspect. He doesn't right. remember that conversation. He was living two blocks from Oswald, whom he knew in the Marines, and he never met him all those months. They were living two blocks apart. Hmm. So Kerry thinks his memory has been tampered with. And he th at one point he thought I was his CIA babysitter. <laughs> then you really involved the conspiracy theory when you got a friend who's accused of being an assassin, and he's accusing you of being the CIA mastermind. Who <laughs> so you can't ignore the subject after that. That's how I came to write Illuminatus, and uh, after that, I can never completely, although I've written on dozens of other subjects, and I hate to be identified with conspiracy theory because I have so many other things that I think are more important that I've written about, but I can't leave it alone entirely because every week in the mail I get tons of stuff by people who've read Illuminatus and want me to be informed about the latest conspiracy that they've just discovered. So I can't get out of the conspiracy field entirely. <laughs> well, what, what is it about the human psyche that seems to be drawn towards these conspiracy theories? Is it some uh, uh, love of the unknown or some idea that uh, there may be forces out there that are controlling our destiny? Or, uh, well, I think there are three factors. A, nobody likes to take the blame for their own problems, so they look for somebody else to blame. <laughs> and if you can find a big enough group, yeah, you've, yeah. you've explained everything in your life that doesn't work. That's it's the not, parental you, conspiracy theory, yeah, it's right? not your fault. It's the fault. Yeah, if it's not your fault, your fault or your parents. It's the Jesuits, the Freemasons, <laughs> the Jews, the uh, the Bilderbergers, the Council on Foreign Relations of the Pioneer. You, know, you got a lot of white choice to pick who to blame. Rich right? white men. Yeah. yeah, as long as you don't have to blame yourself. That's one motive. And another motive is that. Uh, 
We are living in very weird times. The world is changing faster and faster, which I think is due to the uh, acceleration of information flow in the modern world. Information mm -hmm. is increasing, and the transmission of information is going faster and faster due to Internet and the whole computer revolution, mm -hmm. which means that most people are living in a world they can't understand. And when people can't understand something, they tend to go for sinister explanations of it. Somebody is manipulating things in a way I don't like. Mm -hmm. That's the way people feel when things change too fast and they can't understand it. And the third reason is, uh, of course, that there are lots of conspiracies around. <laughs> you're supposed to be a nut if you think about conspiracies. Unless you're a district attorney, then you can bring in 20 people into the court and charge them under the RICO law with conspiracy even if they never met one another <laughs> and uh, I mean the, the government does recognize conspiracies every government does there are laws against conspiracy and conspiracies do exist the question is do any really big ones exist such as the ones imagined in the more extravagant conspiracy theories um, now it's interesting that you should bring up that this may be a modern phenomenon because if you go back through history as you do in the encyclopedia there's always there have always been conspiracy theories. Uh, was it Ishmael Reed, the uh, uh, novelist who said the history of the world is the history of the war between secret societies? Yes, I like that quote quite a bit uh, because there's a certain element of truth in it, but it's just bizarre enough to make people sit up and say, what? <laughs> you know, uh, actually, there's this parallel between the present condition and the condition around the year 1000. Oh, the uh, other millennium madness. Yeah, uh, most people think the Christian calendar is the true calendar. <laughs> I, I spent the whole year dating all my letters with 11 different dates uh, just to remind all my correspondents that there's more than one calendar. The millennium is like 600 years away in the Discordian calendar, and it's about 900 years away in the Mayan calendar. And they've already had s seven millennium changes in, in the Chinese calendar, I think. Yes, so, uh, and uh, <laughs> but most people are uh, thinking in terms of the... The generally accepted calendar, which happens to be a Christian calendar, which is kind of odd since this is not a Christian country. Uh, well, let's go into that. I, you've mentioned this before, and I'm fascinated by uh, by your theory. Uh, it makes more sense than any other political theory I've heard ever. Uh, let's go into this a little. What, what do you mean, sir, that this is not a Christian country? Well, for instance, the uh, Constitution never mentions God or Jesus or the Christian religion. It grants absolute freedom for anybody to pick whatever religion they want. Mentions nature and nature's God. That's in the Declaration of Independence. Oh, okay, all right. And nature's God was a term used by the philosophers of the 18th century mm -hmm. to signify an abstract deity who created the world but has nothing in common with the Christian God, the Jewish God, the Muslim God, the Hindu gods, or any other religious figure. They, this was a philosophical concept that Jefferson invoked, not a deity that people tried to bribe and get favors from. Mm -hmm. The deists, who were the dominant party behind our Constitution, the deists believed there was a God, but God did not do favors and could not be bribed, <laughs> which knocks the bottom out of all organized religion, because all organized religion consists of techniques of how to bribe, cajole, or otherwise sure. get favors out of the deity. Sounds like uh, Jim Morrison's line, you cannot petition the Lord with a prayer. So. Well, that's, that's, what, uh, that's exactly what all the founding uh, fathers thought. Um, 
I forgot what I was going to add to that, so ask another question. Oh, I'm sorry. I, should, uh, I shouldn't have interrupted you. Uh, this is not a Christian country, and I know you had more... Uh... Oh, George Washington, for instance, never used the word God in any of his public uh, speeches or any of his private writings. He did use the word providence, which is a concept that deists share with uh, the Orthodox. But when Washington used the word providence, if he had to use a pronoun afterwards, he always varied between he, she, and it. <laughs> just to show that he didn't believe in any anthropomorphic. The idea of a god with a penis has always seemed hilarious to me. <laughs> and now that the feminists are trying to give me, offering us a god with a vagina, that seems equally ridiculous. I, I'm more inclined to the it school of thought. Any cosmic mind has got to be an it. It's, I can't imagine it being a sexual creature. But if God is sexual, what kind of sex life does God have? Pretty barren, I would imagine, if there's no goddess around to take care of him. Uh, now, uh, let's backtrack for just a second. If this is not a Christian country, we can kind of indicate that the founders of the country were all Masons. So this is more a Masonic country? Most of them were Masons, yeah. Well, the Constitution has a lot in common with the rules of a Masonic lodge, actually. And doesn't that get right back to the conspiracy theory of a secret well, a lot society? Of right, a lot of right-wingers think we have been run by a Masonic conspiracy. Uh, one of the theories I trace through this whole book and has many variations. The theory that the French Revolution was a Masonic conspiracy. Mm -hmm. that, there's, uh, there are various Masonic lodges that are blamed for, by different conspiracy theorists. Some think it's Masonry in general. Some think it's just the Grand Orient Lodge of Egyptian Freemasonry. Some want to blame the Grand Orange Lodge of Ireland. <laughs> it depends on where you're looking, where you, what part of the political spectrum you're looking from, which which Masons you're most afraid of. I got a lot of friends who are Masons, so I'm not afraid of any of them. <laughs> well, you don't seem to be afraid of much of anything. For a person who's an expert in conspiracies, you're probably the least paranoid person I've ever met. You uh, you have the, all the data, but none of the fear that. Uh, uh, most everybody else who's involved in conspiracy theories. Well, my belief is I don't believe in one big conspiracy that runs everything. That that, uh, that seems absurd to me, and there's so much evidence against it. I don't. I I have more sympathy for theories like Carl Oglesby's Yankee and Cowboy War, whether the ruling class is split and at war with itself, or the A. Albionic theory, where the British royal family and the Vatican have been fighting for mm -hmm. 300 years and everything else is the result of the two major conspiracies of the British royal family and the Vatican. But even that seems oversimplified. I prefer to think there's, a, at minimum, at any given time, there's about 24 conspiracies afoot. Carl Oglesby, the historian, once said, a multitude of conspiracies contend in the night. And as far as I have been able to discover in all my years of being involved in, uh, more or less unwillingly in this field, <laughs> I cannot find any proof of any conspiracy that really existed, was really brought into court and convicted that lasted more than 10 years before everybody double-crossed everybody else and the conspiracy fell apart. <laughs> <laughs> it's more of a conspiracy of stupidity, it seems like, is running the planet. Uh, the, I, I, would, I think that is the strongest conspiracy on the planet, is the conspiracy of the stupid, yeah. to prevent schools from educating educating their children, because they want their children to be as dumb as they are, to prevent television from putting anything intelligent on <laughs> as much as possible. To keep well, with the exception <laughs> of this half hour, of course. Well, of course, yes. <laughs> <laughs> present company exploded. <laughs> well, you're half right. But, uh, <laughs> but now, are there, are there uh, since you've done 
massive research on the numerous conspiracy theories, are there certain hallmarks of a good conspiracy? Uh, are there certain things that the, the best conspiracies have in common, uh, like shadowy uh, uh, historical roots or uh, 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 conspiracy to control one particular aspect of life? Well, what, what I have noticed, uh, I, I, it's hard to pick a favorite. It depends on whether we whether I, whether you want the craziest one or the most plausible I'm one. I'm just wondering if they have anything in common. Something well, uh, yeah, about. when you get into the more science fiction type conspiracy theories. The uh, X-Files type? Yeah, well, there's, there are more X-Files type theories around than they've done on X-Files itself. <laughs> uh, there are so many conspiracies, uh, conspiracy theories about various aliens meddling with us. Uh, this, go, uh, this goes back to Charles Fort, who in the 1920s wrote a couple of books on that theme. There's all sorts of ideas about who it is, whether they come from Sirius, or Zeta Reticuli, whether they're greys or some other types. And, or all uh, of the above. And when you, get, when you get into that literature enough, you find out that it's the most science fiction and futuristic theories are curiously the most medieval. What it comes down to is a battle between good and evil on a cosmological mm -hmm. level with the earth as just one part of the major. It goes back before Christianity to Zarathustra, who had mm -hmm. the Araman and Mazda, these two gods who are in perpetual war with each other. And uh, in Christianity, they made uh, the good one God and the bad one the devil. But in Zarathustrianism, you're never quite sure who's the good one or the bad one. You've got to make a choice, but you don't know who you're choosing correctly. You don't know who's going to win, <laughs> which I find more interesting. <laughs> it, it is. It is. It's more existentialist if you recognize your own uncertainty. Well, is there a possibility then that some of these science fictional conspiracies, the Philip K. Dick type uh, conspiracies, the X-File type conspiracies that are floating around now, are uh, uh, an upcoming mythology somehow more related to uh, the the, ex the emergence of a new mythology in the human mind than they are to actual physical events that are taking place on Earth with physical aliens and physical UFOs. Well, they're definitely uh, mythology in the Jungian sense. I don't mean to say that they're all false. I don't know enough to say anything is all false. Some of them are so absurd that I can reject them, but <laughs> some of them are more plausible than others. But they make a mythology in the sense that they give you a cosmic theory that explains everything and gives you a place in the universe and so on. Carl Jung spotted that way back in the 40s. Mm -hmm. He wrote, uh, 52 I think it was, not the 40s. He wrote a book called Flying Saucers, a modern myth of things seen in the skies, in which he predicted this would be the major religion of the second half of the 20th century. And we're more and more moving toward that. Well, didn't more and more, the extraterrestrials are replacing angels and demons. Right. There right. are good extraterrestrials and bad extraterrestrials. And let me that, but we got the incubi and succubi back too. In the oh, Middle Ages, sure. they had these sex demons that attacked people in their sleep. Now they're extraterrestrials instead of being demons, but they're still attacking people in their sleep. Still uh, uh, absconding with them, mating with them, probing them, and uh, doing. Uh... Yeah, there's some place uh, in a galaxy far, far away, according <laughs> to this school of thought, where they get it. Well, Whenever they're really high on some really vicious kind of chemical, they suddenly all say, hey, let's go down to Earth and have a go at somebody, somebody's butt again, you know. Take out Whitley Strieber again. Yeah. It was fun. <laughs> <laughs> um, didn't uh, Jacques Vallée, the uh, French uh, uh, writer, uh, do a whole book about the correspondences between the uh, hallmarks of uh, UFO uh, sightings and sightings of the Holy Virgin Mary? 
Yes, there's a whole bunch of parallels. The Fatima, uh, Fat the miracles at Fatima, which included uh, light brighter than the sun, which plunged toward the earth, and strange sounds in the sky, music and music coming from the heavens and whatnot. Uh, it would be a UFO sighting if the kids didn't say they saw the Virgin Mary. <laughs> <laughs> so well, maybe UFOs are just the modern mind's way of uh, attaching some kind of explanation to some experiences beyond yeah, I, explanation. Yeah, I, I, uh, I personally uh, believe very strongly in UFOs because, well, I see three or four of them every week. <laughs> I told that to, I told that, name, yeah, right? I told that to a friend of mine. He really looked like, oh, my God, you really have gone crazy at last. But what I mean is the sky is full of things that I can't identify. I don't know what they are. But I, not only that, but there are uh, unfos, too, unidentified, non-flying objects. I see them all the time, too. In the garden. That could be because I had a lot of training in general semantics, and I'm not quick to identify things. Mm. Uh, all my identifications are tentative. <laughs> this sounds like uh, George C. Scott and Dr. Strangelove. I'd just like to wait till factor in, sir. No. Uh, well, do you have a, uh, is there is there one or more conspiracies that, that, that really appeal to you, that tickle you beyond all fancy, uh, that, uh, that, that uh, you know, either are so absurd that they just uh, make you laugh out loud or so realistic that they might actually have a chance to be true? Well, there are quite a few that amuse me. Uh, well, what comes to mind right off the top of my head is Lyndon LaRouche has come up with some of the most wonderful conspiracy theories of all. But my favorite, I think, is the little pamphlet he wrote about Henry Kissinger called Kissinger, the Politics of Faggotry, which shows just how far out LaRouche is. He prefers the word faggot to gay because he knows it's more insulting. And somebody who writes like that, you know he's not trying to convince everybody. He just wants to have a small cult of true believers. At least yeah. That's what his style sounds like to me. Uh, Kissinger's wife slugged one of LaRouche's... Uh, Disciples for tracking them through an airport, yelling at her, your husband, your husband goes for little boys, you know, your husband goes for little boys. She, got, she decked him. Well, the, okay, the conspiracy of uh, everything is under control, the conspiracy of, uh, pardon me, the encyclopedia of conspiracy theories is due out in bookstores in July. That's right. That's yes. correct. And what are you working on now? Uh, I know most of your fans are clamoring for more fiction. Well, I'm working on a rewrite of the New Inquisition. Okay. And I'm also working on a rewrite of what used to be Playboy's book of forbidden words, which Playboy oh, yeah. doesn't have the rights to anymore. It's going to be published by Ho House here in San Jose. I'm familiar with them. You're yeah. familiar with Ho yeah, House? So yeah, it's named after Uncle Ho. Yeah, the Chinese god of uh, laughter. That's right. Or Ho Chi Minh, or well, one of them. Uh, so, so, some wise Oriental say, <laughs> just because it sounds like an old joke about New Orleans. No, just because, yeah, <laughs> it takes the old, on a whole the old, different meaning in New Orleans. <laughs> the old joke about New Orleans is anybody gets off, any man who gets off the train there has one thought in mind: Do I check into the hotel first, or do I go to the whole house right away? <laughs> but. Uh, my, one of the ones that really fascinates me is the Howard Hunt, Richard Nixon, Flight 553, Bay of Pigs mystery. Oh, that's right. I was supposed to mention that, and I forgot. So please do go on. Well, in the Watergate tapes, uh, Nixon tells Dean uh, Hunt wants a million dollars. 
And uh, Dean tells Nixon that Hunt wants a million dollars, and Nixon says, well, I can get a million dollars. Oh, I know and this he, quote. I can do might. it. We could get a million dollars. We could do it. We could do it. It wouldn't be easy, but we could do it. <laughs> yeah, then he goes on and says Hunt might spill the whole Bay of Pigs thing. And then later he said that to Haldeman in another tape. He said, Hunt is threatening to spill the whole Bay of Pigs thing. Now, I, I wrote a book many years ago in which I asked the question, what Bay of Pigs thing hadn't come out by 1974 that Nixon was willing to pay a million dollars to cover up? Hmm. Well, it seems that Ehrlichman in his book about the Watergate scandals and A.J. Weberman, who has the biggest and best JFK assassination site on the web, uh, it's a hard one to read. You've got to scroll down each page before you can get to the next. <laughs> Very old-fashioned, but it's got more data in it than any other. Weberman has done a lot of research on that, too, and it seems that Nixon had a code he used for certain subjects. And the whole Bay of Pigs thing was his code for the Kennedy assassination. Oh. And if that's true, so if, if Ehrlichman is telling the truth and Weberman has got the backup evidence correct, then uh, Hunt was threatening to reveal something about the Kennedy assassination that Nixon was willing to pay a million dollars to cover up. This is the kind of theory that I find remotely plausible and not totally crazy. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Because Nixon did start paying the money to Hunt, and Hunt's wife was carrying some of it when she was on a plane that crashed under very mysterious circumstances, Flight 553. And because these are people who wouldn't involve themselves in flights of fancy, this is something concrete that they're talking about, too. Well, Nixon's willing to pay a million dollars to cover it up. It means yeah. something. Yes. And uh, Flight 553, the, the pilot who, uh, eerily enough, was named Captain Whitehouse, Ooh. he had uh, a lot of cyanide in his bloodstream, which is uh, the explanation, the, uh, the official explanations of that are it was gas released when the plane crashed, but... Uh, the critics claim that uh, he couldn't get that much cyanide from that. It would have to be injected, put into him in his drink or something like that. But uh, the um, uh, Spotlight magazine printed uh, the photographs of the three tramps with uh, Howard Hunt and attempt to show one of the three tramps on the grassy knoll was Howard Hunt. Behind the and, fence and the grassy yeah, knoll. and he sued them for libel, and he lost. Hmm. The jury not only found Spotlight innocent, but uh, the, one of the foremen of the jury told the press afterwards that the defense counsel, uh, Mark Lane, mm -hmm. by the way, she said, Mr. Lane wanted us to believe the government shot the president. As we examined all the evidence, we came to the conclusion the government did shoot the president. <laughs> well, is there anybody looking into these things besides yourself? Oh, yeah, there's the Assassination Investigation Committee in Cambridge, Massachusetts. Okay. They, key, they, 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 they are very well informed about all this. They got a list of over 100 people right. connected with the Kennedy assassination who also died. Under mysterious under very mysterious circumstances, yeah. like yeah. Albert Guy Bogard. Right, Dorothy was an was Well, Albert Guy Bogard was an automobile salesman who said uh, Harvey Oswald came in, took a car for a test drive, went 70 miles an hour on the freeway, and gave him a lot of anti-pro-Soviet pro -Soviet propaganda and said he was coming into a lot of money. Now, Oswald did not drive. Maybe it was Kerry Thornley. Maybe it was Kerry Thornley. <laughs> <laughs> it was, well, he's called the second Oswald, the guy <laughs> in that story, who appears several times around Dallas in mysterious context. Mm -hmm. But Albert Guy Bogart, after telling that story, he was found dead in a cemetery shot through the head, pronounced suicide. Uh, there's so many people who committed suicide. Um, Under mysterious, non-suicidal circumstances. George Schild, who was a friend of Oswald's, even though he was a CIA operative and very anti-Soviet, 
when he was subpoenaed by the House Select Committee on Assassinations, he was found dead and pronounced a suicide, mm. although his wife refused to accept that. Uh, Sam Giancana, who was suspected by a lot of people think the Mafia were involved, as soon as he got a subpoena from the uh, House Select Committee on Assassinations, he was shot through the mouth. Mm. The Mafia mm -hmm. calls that Sasso and Boca. That's uh, punishment for suspected informers. Mm -hmm. Johnny Roselli, when he got his subpoena, he disappeared and showed up floating in a barrel in the Gulf of Mexico. <laughs> uh, I could go on and on. The Cambridge, like I said, this group in Cambridge has over 100 <laughs> cases like that. It does, it does make you wonder. Yeah, but unfortunately, we're almost out of time, so we can't go through all 100 of them. But, uh... I don't know all the 100 of <laughs> them. I'm not that so there you go. If you want to spend the uh, rest of your life chasing down leads in the never-ending story of the Kennedy assassination, you can begin by uh, tracking down the mysterious deaths of the hundred or so people who may have somehow been involved in that murder, but who met a similar fate not long after. For my part, however, I've decided to uh, move on, since uh, basically we're never going to know the whole story. The only thing I know for sure is that the official story that includes a magic bullet that changed its direction several times uh, seems to be seriously lacking to me. But you're going to have to decide that on your own because uh, I think there are more productive things to spend time on here in the salon. The second interview I want to play for you right now is one that Bob gave at a time when uh, he must have been on a book tour promoting his book, TSOG, The Thing That Ate the Constitution. This was uh, one of the last books he wrote and was published late in uh, 2002. Uh, TSOG, by the way, stands for Tsarist Occupational Government, which is uh, how he viewed the people who have uh, taken over the reins of power in Washington, D.C., and I don't think he was too far off the mark there. Uh, in fact, uh, he hit the nail on the head from my point of view. So let's uh, begin with Robert Anton Wilson talking about Maybe logic, or maybe logic, or maybe logic, <laughs> depending on how you view it and want to say it. Maybe logic was invented by John von Neumann in 1933. Von Neumann is the unappreciated genius of modern science. Scientists appreciate him, but the general public, I don't think, has ever heard of him. He wrote one of the best books on quantum mechanics. He was one of the pioneers of programmable computers. We wouldn't have internet without him. Anyway, maybe logic, uh, one of his major inventions, uh, instead of dividing everything into true and false like Aristotle, which only applies in the abstract. Aristotelian logic only applies if you ignore the sensory, sensual, space-time continuum in which we live. If you, if you take into context, we live in a real universe which we're touching things, bumping into things, kissing things, loving things, hating things, throwing rocks at things, and so on. You realize that most of our perceptions are in the maybe mode. They're not yes or no. They're not true or false. They're just maybes. I think maybe logic uh, is probably the greatest invention of the 20th century. Although, of course, von Neumann had a lot of competition. Kozhipsky offered an infinite-valued logic in which between yes and no, we've got an infinite series of maybes. Anatole Rappaport invented a four-valued logic, true, false, indeterminate, and meaningless. Indeterminate is something which, in principle, we might be able to test someday, but right now we can't. We don't have the technology to test it. 
like how much life is there in the universe. We just don't know. That's indeterminate. Meaningless are propositions that can never be tested because they're defined so they can't be tested, such as round squares eat red cabbage. First, you've got to find a round square to, before you can even begin to observe its eating habits. And since you can't find a round square, there's no way of ever testing that. Another one is the Catholic doctrine that after a priest pronounces the right formula over a piece of bread, it becomes the body of a Jew who died 2,000 years ago. And since cannibalism is good for you, you should eat the body of the dead Jew and it'll make you feel good. I don't know, Catholics are not particularly fond of Jews. I don't know why they like that one so much, but they, they like eating him anyway. Everybody else thinks they're just eating bread. They think they're eating a human being. They think they're Hannibal Lecter. We think they're nuts. I don't know. But that's an example of a, of a meaningless statement. It can't be proven or disproven. If they want to think they're cannibals, let them think it. We can't disprove it. We're not going to bother arguing about it. It's meaningless, like the round squares. Now the Vice President, Richard Cheney, has given us another three-valued logic, true, false, and despicable. The true statements are the ones the government makes, the false statements are the ones the enemies abroad make, and the despicable statements are the ones that we're not supposed to think about at all. Uh, I don't, I'm not sure he, he, he thinks he can stop us from thinking about it, but he wants to stop us from talking about it anyway. I heard him on uh, CNN a week or so ago where he was asked about criticisms of the Bush administration. He described them as despicable. Yes is what you can prove, no is what you can disprove, and despicable is what you can't even test, you're not allowed to test it. It's the modern equivalent of the Catholic term heretical. You're not supposed to think about it. I'm proud to say this book consists almost 100% of despicable statements. Nobody is supposed to be thinking about these things. I don't believe there should be anything we're not allowed to think about. Your new book, SOG, seems your most political work to date. Why did you wait until now to write such a book? Well, I think there's, a, there's an undertone of satire on religion and patriotism and everything I've written. I regard religion and patriotism as the two major mental illnesses afflicting this planet. And there's an undertone. It's a theme in all of my books. But I guess it got more focused during the Clinton years because I made the mistake of voting, which I usually never do, but somehow Clinton inspired a faith in me. He, he pressed the right buttons, he used the right words, he used a lot of terminology from cybernetics and social science. He showed he was educated. I thought, gee, this guy is smart enough, he might actually do some good. Then he turned out to be as bad as any of the others and worse than most of them. And then it's followed by the the crookedest election in American history, the crookedest presidential election. Anyway, we've had crooked elections all over the country repeatedly. Well, this is the crookedest presidential election ever, and then we get this unexpected, unprovoked attack, which was warned of by the French, the Philippines, FBI agents, and about three officers. Everybody knew about it except Dubia, it seems. Dubia was the only one who was out of the He didn't know it was going to happen. But curiously, he was out of the White House while the plane was headed towards the White House. Isn't that an odd coincidence? My God, what wonderful luck he has. Well, maybe he did read those reports after all. Maybe he can read. Who knows? I think the combination of the crooked election and the new Pearl Harbor, which looks as fake to me as the first Pearl Harbor, 
I was working on another book and I couldn't get anywhere with it because I kept taking time off to work on this book, which I was going to write later. Finally, this book got finished and the other one still wasn't. Because I feel, I never felt so optimistic about our potentials as I do right now with all the scientific breakthroughs that are occurring. I never felt so angry about the way we're not using our potentials. To quote as found, <laughs> It's like being in the middle of a rainstorm and seeing people running around with spoons saying, we can't get any water, we can't get any water, we got to kill one another over the water. And none of them realizes that it's pouring down. Hell, to give everybody on the planet clean drinking water would cost about $7 million. If we can afford to give $3 billion a year to Israel to kill Arabs, we can afford $7 million to give everybody clean drinking water. If everybody had clean drinking water, that would cut down on the spread of AIDS, for one thing. It would also cut down on the amount of anger against the white world on the part of the three-quarters of the planet, which is non-white. Just clean drinking water. Then if we gave people adequate medical care. You know, it's not true that terrorists hate us because of our freedom. We don't have much freedom for them to hate in the first place. And in the second place, they hate us for abusing them, for stealing their natural resources, for enslaving them, for making war on them, for dumping napalm on them from the air, for bombing them, for for generally treating the third world like, well, most Americans have a dim sense of how badly we treated the aborigines of this continent and how badly off they still are on their reservation. We have a dim sense of guilt about that. But nine out of ten Americans have no idea that we've been doing that to the rest of the world, too, for the last hundred years. All the aboriginal, tribal, and some of the comparatively advanced cultures, they've all been overrun by American industry, backed by American soldiers with American guns shooting at anybody who resists them. We've been invading third world countries since 1898 or so. Hell, if you include the first Mexican War in 1848, we've been invading the rest of the world for over 150 years. And my God, why are they fighting back? They must hate our freedom. How can, how can people be so stupid as to believe that they hate us because we've been attacking them and robbing them for 150 years? That's why they hate us. Who the hell can hate somebody else for their freedom? They have more freedom than I have in Amsterdam. I don't hate them for that. I envy them for it. And I'd like to go live in Amsterdam if I was still healthy enough to make a move of that sort. I would move to Amsterdam. SOG is an abbreviation I invented bizarrest occupation government because I discovered that everything I objected to in the United States government seems to trace back to James Jesus Angleton of the CIA or J. Edgar Hoover of the FBI and leaving Hoover aside for the moment, Angleton had a definite alliance with czarist groups in Soviet Russia who were trying to overthrow the Soviet system and with the Nazi general Reinhard Galen. And the CIA czarist Nazi alliance began to seem to me more and more the key to everything that's been crazy and bizarre and, and incomprehensible about American foreign policy in the last 50 years. I, I think the central thinking of the ruling class of the United States basically is within the czarist uh, paradigm. They don't say so, but that's the way they act. And that fact, they're more and more saying, we, we've even got a czar, haven't we? we got a czar, and the czar, last I heard, was threatening to uh, close down 
all the medical treatments he doesn't approve of, which is, sounds like Ivan the Terrible or Peter the Great or one of those nuts out of the Dark Ages. As far as I'm concerned, the Inquisition never ended. Uh, the Catholic Church officially ended the burning at the stake epoch in 1819. The Inquisition still exists. It's called the Holy Order for the Doctrine of the Faith. All they can do is throw you out of the church nowadays, but they can't burn you at the stake anymore. But the Inquisition is still very alive there. And now the United States government has its own Inquisition. If you have any despicable ideas, God knows what's going to happen to you. And i got more despicable ideas than anyone. The FDA and the DEA between them have taken away most of the, most of the freedoms that are most precious to us. The destruction of the First Amendment by the Supreme Court is the major visible horror because the Constitution says quite simply Congress shall make no laws abridging freedom of speech and of the press. Every year the Supreme Court sits down and decides whether a given law abridging freedom of speech or of the press is constitutional or not. Sometimes they decide it is constitutional, even though the Constitution says no laws. I agree with Justice Hugo Black. No laws means no laws. It doesn't mean some laws. But beyond that major abomination, the FDA and the DEA have closed down the Tenth Amendment, which says all powers not delegated to the federal government are reserved to the states or to the people. I think that amb ambiguity was deliberate, whether it's the states or the people. They want to give a chance for the popular vote to overrule the state legislature through the initiative of the state legislature to overrule the people if the people were too wacko at that time. They want, they want to balance power every way they could. Now, neither the states nor the people have any power over the most important factors of their life, namely their medical care. There's ten states that have legalized medical marijuana. The federal government won't pay any attention. When it gets to 20 states, will they pay attention? When it gets to 30, the government has announced that it doesn't matter what the people vote for in the referendum, it doesn't matter what the state legislatures enact, the states and the people both have no medical rights whatsoever. The government determines what's permissible and what's not permissible. That's the Inquisition all over again. They don't even have to go to court and prove their case. The Inquisition had to haul you in and give you a trial. They don't even do that. They just announce this is despicable. You can't think about it. You can't do it. And if the people vote for it, well, fuck the people. We don't believe in democracy anymore anyway. Haven't you noticed? They hate us for our freedom because we don't have any. Is patriotism possible with maybe logic? I don't see how patriotism is a uh, identification with a given gene pool. I think it has decreased over the centuries because most countries are combinations of gene pools. Where you have one gene pool dominating a country, you still have really fanatical patriotism. It's, it's patriotism, it's loyalty to the gene pool. As Haldane said, evolution has programmed us so that we'll die for a brother and risk our life for a cousin. And beyond that, who will risk his life for a stranger? Very few will. Some will, but they're rare. So it's a patriotism, gene pool loyalty is sort of built into us. But most countries are combinations of gene pools, most of which don't like each other very much in our in competition or have prejudices against each other. They're economically competing, they're religiously different, and so on. And so patriotism gets more and more attenuated. It only comes to the 
service and a really virulent and obnoxious form when everybody feels equally under attack, which is what the terrorists want. They don't mind unifying us as long as we're all unified in the same terror. We're afraid of them. So you know, they don't mind the fact that's bringing us closer together. So it's only bringing us closer together temporarily. In the Revolutionary War, there were black regiments. As soon as the war was over, they were re-enslaved. If you get what I mean. And everybody is united. In this country, almost everybody is unified. Right now, they feel unified. But that doesn't end the fact that the rich are mostly white males and the poor are mostly black females. That doesn't change that fact, for instance. What is patriotism? Uh, I, think it's a, I think it's a ridiculous superstition. But to put the best face on it, it's loyalty to that which you admire most in your own country. Well, what I admire most in our country is the founding fathers and the Bill of Rights and the gradual extension of the suffrage. So it includes almost everybody. Too bad we don't have candidates to vote for. Uh, there's a lot I admire in this country, but it exists elsewhere in the world, too, not just in this country. So it's patriotic in the sense that it's uh, very much in favor of the Constitution. Of course, not all of the Constitution. I don't. I think it has defects, like the slavery business, for instance. I don't want to restore that. But I just think the Constitution is one of the better political systems devised by humanity, and it's one that has strong roots in this country, and it still exists. You can look in the back of the dictionary, and there it is. It has nothing to do with the way our government actually operates, but it's in print. It's in the back of damn near every dictionary. You can find it in many schoolrooms hanging on the wall. So to the extent that it exists, it's an ideal that people can more or less recognize, if SOG has no other effect than people reread the Constitution and start thinking about it, I'll be satisfied. Why does faith get such a bad name in SOG? Well, it requires faith to decide that something is despicable rather than checking it, doesn't it? I, I think faith is the mental health problem number one on this planet. What's going on right now, the latest crusade, after a thousand years or more or less after the crusades began, we're in another crusade because people who have faith in Christianity and people who have faith in Islam have an equal and opposite faith that the other people are all wrong if, they're not, if they don't share our religion there's something wrong with them, if they have dark skin that's another thing that's wrong with them too and on the other hand they have the belief if you don't belong to Islam you're wrong and if you keep attacking Islam repeatedly over a thousand years you're very, very wrong and we're going to blow the shit out of you and all of this, all of this results from faith. Like Israel, for instance, the conflict between the Palestinians and the Israelis. If they all became atheists overnight, imagine if there was a bolt of thunder and they all suddenly woke up and realized they don't know anything, they're just guessing. They could negotiate an agreement satisfactory to both sides within about two weeks. The reason they can't do that at present is because each one of them has a sacred scripture that says you've got a right to fight for this land and God is on your side, so go on fighting and God will take care of you. As long as people have that kind of faith, they're never going to stop fighting and killing each other. Mencken said religion is the chief fomenter of hatred in the history of the world. I would say faith is the chief fomenter of war in the whole history of the world.
even in comparatively secular societies, it becomes an article of faith that the government is justified, the other side is all wrong, we're all right, and nobody's supposed to think about the question at all. That becomes despicable. I believe we should think about the despicable. That which is labeled heretical, despicable, blasphemous, outrageous, those are the things we should think about most. Those are the most important issues confronting us, in my mind. Who do you think most enthusiastically encourages faith in American society today? Well, organized religion and the politicians and, of course, the advertisers. Advertisers never ask you to have faith, but they try to condition you to react below the level of reason. They're working on conditioned reflexes. Religion and politics work on conditioned reflexes plus faith. If the advertisers could figure out a way to get you to have faith in them, they, they aren't quite, nobody quite feels about Ditech the way they feel about, the way some people feel about Scientology or the Islam or the Catholic Church or George W. Bush. But, uh, if the advertisers could work out a gimmick that, we, that persuade us that it's necessary to have faith in them, they would do it, of course, because faith really reinforces conditioned reflexes very well. Absolutely stops thinking entirely if you, if you have enough faith. People have been governed by faith throughout most of history. The people, it seems the world is divided into three groups, at least just the way it seems to me sometimes the gullible who have faith in almost any con man who comes along, the sociopaths who realize that the majority are gullible and take advantage of them by selling them the Brooklyn Bridge or short a stay in purgatory or an eternity with virgin dancing girls in paradise like Osama bin Laden is offering his followers. And uh, then there are those of us who know that the majority are gullible idiots, and we see the sociopaths exploiting them. We don't want to exploit them. We want to wake them up until, hey, start thinking for yourselves. They never pay any attention to us. They much prefer the sociopaths who flatter them and cajole them and separate them from their wallets. And I, I long ago gotten used to that. I'm preaching to the choir almost all the time. I, I'm never going to reach the people who, who need to be awakened. I only reach the people who have started to wake up, and I help them to wake up a little further. Maybe that's the most, that's the biggest role I can imagine for myself. Do you have any use for faith personally, Bob? Well, let's say I have some rather strong emotional commitments and uh, and powerful intuitions, but I do not elevate any of them to dogmas, and I don't try to ram them down anybody's throat. I tend to believe in some kind of intelligence behind the universe. I refuse to call it God because to most people God means an old man with a long beard who's watching to see which 12-year-old boys are masturbating so he can put them in a bonfire for a million years. Not for a million years, but for millions of millions of millions of years. I can't use the word God. It has so many stupid, superstitious connotations. That is, that's one of the stupidest and silliest, but the... The, you know, the number of meteors that have hit churches, churches wiped out by floods, by earthquakes, by lightning strikes before they put lightning rods on them. And by the way, why do they need lightning rods on churches if they think God listens to prayers? All they got to do is, hey, don't, 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 don't let any lightning hit our church. That doesn't work. Faith is believing what you know ain't so. That's why they put lightning rods on their churches. You think of all the calamities that have happened to churches, the idea of a consciousness 
has a particular concern with the human race out of all the possible species in what Carl Sagan used to call the billions and billions of galaxies. But this, the mind behind it has a particular interest in us and has a particular interest in being praised and flattered and cajoled by it. Jeez, when I listen to the things people say to their God, if anybody spoke to me that way, I'd, I'd really get pissed off at them. I don't need that much flattery. I don't want that much flattery. It's just plain embarrassing. It's obviously sycophantic and hypocritical. What it comes down to is, oh, you're so big. You're so big and wonderful. Do something good for us because we know you're so big and wonderful. It's talking to God like he's a four-year-old retarded child. So I can't believe in... Besides, look at, the, look at the records. Look at the Koran. Look at the Old Testament. Look at the New Testament. The God described there is as, as a mental level of about a four-year-old. I can't imagine that character creating even a carbon molecule, much less a DNA molecule. He, he would get a couple of strands in a molecule, right? Then he'd screw up, and then to show his, his vexation, he would rain fire and brimstone on two cities and tell whoever he elected as his representatives at that time, go murder another tribe over there. I mean, that's all through the Old Testament. He's always telling them, go kill the Midianites, go kill the Headites, go kill, you know, wipe them all out, kill all the men and rape all the women. That's a god. That's, that's the brain behind the universe. I can't believe it. It's only an intuition and it's not a dogma. But I feel it's some kind of intelligence in the universe. And maybe above it for all I know, but I'm not going to argue about it. You're listening to the Psychedelic Salon, where people are changing their lives one thought at a time. Now, if you and I were sitting around a fire right now, chatting with a few friends, it sure would be fun to pick up where Bob left off and further explore his thought uh, that if everyone in the Middle East just gave up their religions, uh, then they could solve their problems in a matter of weeks. Personally, I agree with that statement, uh, but the topic is uh, going to have to wait for another day. Maybe because it uh, should be the focus of a plyologue someday or something like that. In fact, uh, since several of our saloners have uh, started their own podcast channels lately, maybe uh, a couple of you could chew on that topic for a while. I'd uh, certainly be interested in hearing some uh, more opinions about this myself, uh, not to mention the loaded topic of whether or not there's any intelligence behind the universe. But before you begin to answer that one, uh, don't forget to first define what you mean by intelligence. (laughs) Well, I'd like to go on with some of these thoughts, but uh, I'm already a couple of days behind in getting this program out. So uh, I'm going to have to uh, move on for now since there's uh, at least one more thing I want to mention today. Uh, And that's a posting in our notes from the Psychedelic Salon blog by Planet Citizen, who says... Thanks, Lorenzo, and thanks for the invitation to think critically about Terence. I find TM fascinating and love listening to him, but there is an aspect about him that I have always found troubling, and it centers around women. Listening to this talk, especially the end, from the perspective of almost all the women I know, I can't help but think that they'd object to this social program of getting loaded, crossing sexual boundaries, etc., That many women find this uh, troubling is not a crime, but it may be a clue that TM's thought is somehow part of a male point of view and therefore may be limited in ways hard to see by other men. Relations between men and women in general seem to be a fascinating and not often discussed problem in the psychedelic community. 
The gist of the criticism might be that McKenna, in his flights to spiritual heights, leaves the groundedness of normal life. This luxury is paid for by the less powerful, who are often women. Whether or not the dominant hierarchies need to collapse or not, the kids need breakfast and someone needs to take out the recycling today. The spiritual pursuit and its shattering insights are hard to reintegrate into a community. Women, who are not always, but often, interested in preserving the health of the community, may find this threatening. TM's goal is often, curiously, considered in feminine terms. Groundedness of the body, Gaia as female, etc., And yet, I wonder how many women recognize femininity in this. Is the fantasy of an all-giving mother whore at work here? Perhaps a more feminine approach is to admit that there is no feminine approach, that endless categories and theories, complete with transcendent longings and disappointments, are part of an endless cycle of alienation and escape, that the way out is to give it all up and get breakfast out there. Or maybe this thought mandalas are a part of what makes humans beautiful. Who knows? I don't have an answer here, but I think this missing piece deserves more attention. Instead of considering our collective divorces and disastrous relationships as accidents of personal history, could they somehow be tied in to the very structure of our models of psychedelia? I honestly don't know, but I'd love to see this seriously discussed. Well, where to begin, huh? First of all, thank you for that very thoughtful comment, Planet Citizen. I think you've raised a very important topic here. To begin with, uh, I don't want to get into a discussion about particular traits of Terence, uh, since he isn't here to defend himself. My only comments regarding Terence are that I have heard him on several occasions make mention of the fact that uh, he realized he wasn't perfect, uh, particularly in his relationships with others. And I've heard some stories about his personal relationships that aren't all that flattering. And I've heard some friends and lovers who uh, speak of him in only the highest regard. Ultimately, uh, what we sometimes forget is the fact that Terence, and you, and me, and all the rest of the psychedelic community are still human beings. And uh, with that comes all of the personal failings and baggage that uh, we've all suffered through. I know that I've not been the uh, best husband, father, grandfather, and friend that I could have been in every circumstance. And my guess is that uh, you've let yourself down once or twice as well. The point that I've tried to make on several occasions is that, and this is just my personal opinion, by the way, but my belief is that these sacred medicines don't change us. They only make us more of what we already are at the time. Any changes that take place have to be done on our own after we've come back from uh, one of these mystical experiences. The worldwide psychedelic community, uh, which numbers in the tens of millions, by the way, is made up of everyday people, people like you and me. We have arguments, we get divorced, we sometimes don't treat our friends very well. We aren't all that different from everybody else. What does set the psychedelic community apart somewhat, uh, however, is our constant searching a longing almost uh, for a better understanding of why we're here and uh, what our destiny as a species is. Or more importantly, what it can be if we ever get our act together. We are inquisitive. We're searchers who are searching for something we can't name or describe. And my hunch is that that fact doesn't set us apart either. I think most people, once their basic food, shelter, and clothing needs are taken care of, wonder about the same things. What is different about you is that you are asking questions like the one Planet Citizen raised. 
even though you still don't have everything in your own life going perfectly. In fact, I know that uh, we have quite a few fellow saloners who are living in what I would call almost desperate circumstances. Some even have to risk their lives just to get to work or go to school each day. And yet, once a week or so, even these very unfortunate people join us here in cyberdelic space. It's amazing when you think about it. You and me and our fellow saloners are on some kind of a strange path. One that we aren't sure uh, where it's taking us, but uh, for reasons that remain a little fuzzy, we know in our hearts that it's leading us home. Or, <laughs> or maybe we simply enjoy a little intellectual stimulation from time to time just to keep the monsters at bay. Who knows? All I know for sure is that I am wherever my thoughts are at the moment. And where I am right now is in cyberdelic space with you. And that's exactly where I want to be. If only we could just pass a pipe around right now, uh, everything would be perfect. Well, that's enough philosophizing for today. Now it's time to go outside and get some fresh air, don't you think? But before I go, I want to mention that this and all of the podcasts from the Psychedelic Salon are available for your use under the Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial Sharealike 3.0 license. And if you have any questions about that, just uh, click the Creative Commons link at the bottom of the Psychedelic Salon webpage, which you can find at psychedelicsalon.org. And that's also where you'll find the program notes for these podcasts. For now, this is Lorenzo signing off from Cyberdelic Space. Be well, my friends. <laughs> <laughs>